our best friends and next door neighbors, Willow and Lillian, spill the tea on murder, mysteries, and other things that go bump in the night. So get your favorite teacup ready and let's get into it. Welcome to Cruelty Podcast. This is Lillian, and with me is Willow. Hello. Hello. And we're doing medical murders. Mm-hmm. And I don't know our case because I don't know it, but Willow does. <laughs> so I'm going to cut the chit chat and get right into it. Stop that chit chat. Anyway, I did. <laughs> um, so this is the second case of Dr. Death. Remember, I said that there was three of them. This is Dr. Death number two. This is an American Dr. Death. And he is pretty much the exact opposite of the Dr. Death that we talked about last week. Um, They did have similarities growing up, I guess. Um, Like Dr. Shipman, Dr. Swango. His name is Michael Swango. Um, Dr. Swango was a middle child, his mother's favorite as well, due to his ability to get good grades in school. Also, like Dr. Shipman, Swango went to an elite private school that his parents could barely afford, and he was the only one out of his siblings to go to a private school. Almost exactly like Shipman. Damn favoritism. Yeah, it's really weird. They, like, really scraped their pennies together to get him into the elite schools. Um... But yeah, it was it was almost like it was almost identical in his upbringing because she was like his mother even said that he that his siblings were not as bright as him, which <laughs> is getting rude. Yeah, I know. But it's like exactly what Shipman's parents had said about him. Now, Michael's mother, Muriel, wasn't really one to show much of affection, but what little she did have, she gave that to Michael. And this type of parenting style was actually like really common in the 1950s and 60s when he was growing up. The idea that like you needed to limit your affection on your children because they could potentially be spoiled or self-centered. Oh, I remember that whole movement and that was so crap. Very, very like robotic type of relationships. It was abusive. (laughs) Um, Yeah. If you neglect your child emotionally, they're going to grow up weird. Yeah. And this guy did quite a bit because, you know, Again, his mother wasn't very affectionate, but he was the only one that got the crumbs of affection. So it was even weirder, I guess, because his yeah. his siblings didn't get any. The favorite child thing, I never find that the favorite child appreciates the favoritism. No, no. I had that they, going on with my mom and it was rough. I did not like it. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. He really took that and, and expected it in life, I think. Oh, yeah. His father, John Virgil, I've heard him called both names. Um, He was a U.S. officer who had served in Vietnam. And though he was barely home because he was really in and out quite a bit, when he was there, he was extremely militant to the children like to a really weird he he took it to a weird place he was very cold very disciplinary he was very strict he'd make his sons stand at attention and march as if they were in the army then they would have to salute and do push-ups and all kinds of the like all the things that his that their father had to do um in training he made their kids do and it was just real weird just really really weird And then, of course, after, whenever he came back home from Vietnam, he came back home 
um, an alcoholic and became really abusive towards the children and towards his wife and just really violent. And so they got a divorce and all the kids went with their mother, just like Shipman. And Michael was basically the only child in that household, you know, at this point, especially now that the father is gone. Um, he's definitely the only child to be shown any type of affection. And it gave him really like a hothead. He got quite the hothead about himself. He didn't have any friends because everyone thought he was fucking scary and fucking weird because he was. He showed signs of a grotesque and very macabre nature early on. He liked wounds. And he would perk up at the mention of accidents or any type of bodily Ew. harm, like in a really gross way, like he found pleasure in it. When he learned about the Holocaust in school, unlike all of the other children and the normal reaction, he became obsessed with it. He fixated on like everything that the people went through. He would obsess over like the way that the internment camps worked and the pictures and yeah, you know I can't even look at those I man. can't upset me no and I mean I've definitely seen very little um and it just, it, it's like making me sweaty just thinking about it because it's just gut-wrenching but he obsessed over it oh they just make me cry he loved it he absolutely loved the mass graves and the disfigured bodies and the signs of abuse and like what they did during the like the scientific experiments on people um he was just fascinated by it he loved pain he loved suffering he loved death and he loved carnage and that was just basically what he was into from the get-go like from a very very disturbingly young age when his father was in vietnam he started reading the paper to keep up with what was going on in the war and while he was reading the paper he'd get intrigued by other stories that he read and then he started cutting out articles that he liked out of the newspapers and and making like scrapbooks and collages with them. Um, but these stories were stories of murders, stories of crime scenes, stories of car accidents where it talked about people's injuries and any type of gore that he could get his hands on. Um, he'd even like go into like magazines and stuff like that too and, and cut Jesus. out pictures. And yeah, he. He would cut out all of these pictures and make all these scrapbooks like meticulously. They were all dated. They were all named. Uh, his alleged first book that they think is his first book, at least chronologically, was called Violent Weather of the United States and very, like, very meticulously written. He wrote his name, his street address, as well as the beginning dates, September 1970 uh, to September 1971. So you know that he's like he's already planning for more. It's labeled volume one. So you already know that with this, he's expecting to have multiple volumes at this point. He's obsessed. Yeah, God, he's, it's so weird. He's so obsessed that his mother decided that this was like one of his quote unquote like special interests. Like she was like, oh, this is just something that he's into. And so when she read the morning paper, she would cut out stories for him. Basically, Lord love a duck. Yeah. And when people were like, OK, that's really fucking weird that you do that. She was just like, oh, well, he just keeps up with these things. It's just it's a thing. She she was not worried about it. Ma'am, this is a Wendy's and those are not Hot Wheels. <laughs> do not like mm -mm. I do not accept this. 
anything Michael was interested in, his mother supported. When he wanted to play piano and the clarinet, his mother bought the instruments and got him lessons, and he excelled. When... Um, when he got really good, he got into the school band, and eventually he ended up getting a scholarship based on his talent there. So, like, pretty much anything that he did and he set his mind to, he excelled in. Um, but he has a really dark and twisted mind, and it ages really, really terribly. So he also was in sports. He ran track. He served on the student council. He was really involved in his school. And he wasn't necessarily the smartest kid, but he had so much confidence and so much charisma and pretty good grades. He ended up graduating valedictorian at Quincy Notre Dame High School in Quincy, Illinois in 1972. As soon as he graduated, he went to Millican University, which started off promising. His first year and a half to two years there began pretty good. He started off um, basically almost like a lead character role in a movie. He was popular. He was blonde. He had a gorgeous girlfriend. He had tons of friends. He was kind of a jock. And he, you know, he just had that thing about him. He had a big smile, blonde hair, blue eyes. I don't know. He just... He seemed like that type of character, and it seemed like his whole life was perfect in each and every way. But then his girlfriend broke up with him, and he went off the rails. It just, it sent him, and he never recovered from this. He... I need to understand right now what <laughs> is it with cishet men and breaking up, and then they flip the fuck out. Right. Right. Like, y'all, it's okay. I've had so many breakups. It's okay. We keep oh, going. Listen. Like, it's not that big of a deal. You don't die. No. I get being sad. Yeah. But this. But then going and just be like, you know what I'm going to do? Going I'm just going like, to kill tons of people. Yeah. Yeah. Literally going from like a concert pianist and, you know, Fellas, listen, here's, here's my tip. Get you a tub of ice cream, favorite yeah. flavor. Do what we do. Watch you a sad movie yes. where you can cry. Take a cry bubble bath. Self care. Get it out. Go go hook up with a bunch of random people and have your slut phase. Yeah, it's okay. Don't get obsessed with war and go to Vietnam for fun. It's not fun. We're not he didn't actually go to Vietnam. He wanted to though. <laughs> I bet he did. He really did. No, this literally turned him into like a military fanatic, and I don't know why. I have no idea because why. It, I mean, because of his father. I get it. Uh, not only that, I think I think some people are drawn to the military because you don't have to think. Yeah. Someone else tells you what to think. You're busy. Right. There's no downtime for the bad thoughts that come when you're all well, alone. He's, he's so obsessed with these books that he's making. He makes them his entire life, like obsessively is cutting out stories. Oh, dear. All these scrapbooks he's making until well into his 40s. Probably still to this day. He's probably in prison making them right now. Like, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, goodness. So he's obsessing with carnage. He's obsessing over descriptions of, of bodily harm and wounds. And he thinks, well, I'll just go to war because Vietnam looks really fucking brutal. I'll just do that. Okay. So, yeah, he ends up getting really obsessed. He paints his car camo green. And when I read this... 
I instantly thought that he had like spray painted his car like in yeah. camo design, like like the guy, guy down the, the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, by the way, he had a he had a, a camo spray painted shitty car, yeah. and then that car broke down. It's up yes. the road on like some blocks, and then um, he had a shitty scoot scoot scooter. My God, that thing! That thing yeah. is so loud. My dogs hate it. Uh, no, this I, I had to look at it. It wasn't that. He just had painted his car camo green the color oh, not green. the spotsies no that's no. still a really pukey barf color to paint a car i mean i i like it but well, it's mm, i like green car but it's just it's he's going out of his way to be that guy is is basically the point he starts wearing um military uniforms at school like, you're not even in the military yet. Calm oh, down. Dude. And even after he goes into the military and comes back out, like, for years and years later, he's still wearing his military car. It's just weird. He's weirdly obsessed with things. Um, but, yeah, he ended up going to um, getting into the Marines. And he was basically like... He went through training. He became a sharpshooter, but he never actually got to go to Vietnam. So he was kind of like, fuck this. I don't want to be in the United States. He was like doing paperwork and shit. And he was just like, I'm not getting to kill people. So he ended up dropping out of college and, you know, going to the Marines. And then he ended up only doing that for a couple years. And then he got an honorable discharge. So he ended up doing everything that he needed to do. He ended up doing a good job in the Marines because there's so much you have to do to get an honorable discharge. But he did it all and he finished his duties and then he just left and ended up going back to school this time to be a doctor because he was like, well, if I can't see carnage at war, I might as well see carnage in a hospital. He's outweighing his options basically of how, like how easy he is to, you know, at least be accessible to pain other people's suffering. That's all he wants in life. So yeah, he, He's fucking creepy, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So whenever he gets out of the military, not only is he wearing like his military garb, but like for years and years later, like all throughout med school and everything like that, he is also like jogging, either jogging in place or jogging, like running laps in front of everybody and then doing like calisthenics, like doing like morning like Dude. army calisthenics like yelling at himself touch grass what is wrong with you i mean i think he was doing push-ups on the lawn right there in front of oh, everybody he was touching grass he was in the it grass helping. i think i think it was he needed more than grass too much grass his 1970s <laughs> sorry oh, um, i'm gonna fucking kill you <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he was just like weirding everyone out because, again, this is the 1970s. Most people, especially people who are in college and, you know, I don't know, most young people his age are completely against the war like normal people were. But he was kind of like it was just more in your face that he was being like a military guy supporting the war at a med school where people are trying to save lives. It just it. It was more than weird. It was eerie. It was creepy. Also, whenever like instructors would like tell him stuff, like um, they'd get on to him for something or correct him on anything, he would stop and literally start doing push-ups right there as a form of punishment. Okay. <laughs> He's just so fucking weird. 
So, yeah, this guy was out there. He ended up thinking that the best way, you know, to see human gore would be in the medical field. But he had a lot of studying to do. He had to go through community college to get into, you know, a bigger college to Quincy College, where he double majored in chemistry and biology. He was really just trying to push out as much of this as humanly possible so he could get his degree and get to, you know, the hands on type stuff. Which, by the way, his under his undergrad in chemistry thesis was on the unsolved poisoning of a Bulgarian writer named Georgi Markov, who had been living in exile in London. He had died days after being poked in the leg with an umbrella. Like he was just walking down the fucking street. Somebody poked him in the leg with an umbrella as he was walking. That person kept walking by. And four days later, he was dead. I wonder if it was sepsis. No, it was... Oh, he was poisoned. He was poisoned. Interesting. Because, like, the, they modified the end of the umbrella Sounds to... Sounds like some shit the KGB be pulling. I don't know what that is. The Russian secret police kill people in weird ways all the time like that. Oh. They have, like, heart attack guns and shit. Mm. They're very fond of poisoning people who disagree with Putin. Just saying. Well, I won't say what I think, then. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so, um, so they ended up finding out that it was ricin poisoning. Ooh, ricin's nasty. Do you know about ricin? Because I, I didn't know about this until this study. I do. You don't want to share? You want me to? You oh, go right okay. ahead. So <laughs> what I have learned is that ricin comes from castor beans. Yes, it does. Which, I don't know, I just find that odd. Because I use castor oil for my hair, I wouldn't think that it would be poisonous. Um, well, not in the oil not in the oil form. form, of course. Yes, but yes, it is. Aside from injecting, ricin can also be inhaled or put in water in a spray bottle and sprayed. Basically, any way that it gets into your body or on your body, it will damage it. So whether it's in the skin, the nose, the eyes, the mouth, anything breathed in, it'll cause fever, chest tightness. Um, cough, fluid buildup on the lungs, and then severe breathing problems if eaten, vomiting and diarrhea, and it can cause bleeding of the gut and organ damage. It basically just ends up corroding wherever it is yep. and killing you that way. And it's there's, awful. It's there's a painful no, way to die. There's, yeah, there's no way to like save anybody from a ricin poisoning. No, either. there's no antidote. There's no antidote. And I mean, with even today's modern me medicine, you can barely even just get comfort while you're dying. Like no, there's it's really a painful, you can excruciating do. organ failure, death. And it's just readily available. Mm -hmm. The reason it's not used more, it's easily traced. Oh, really? Indeed. Hmm. Well, I think this is back in the early 1900s, this Georgie Markov case. Yes. So Oleander would have been a better actually choice. 1800s. If we're going to use natural Oleander? poisons. Yes, yeah, killer tips from Lillian. Yeah. Oleander is harder to trace because it doesn't stay in the body as long and then is only present in the liver for up to 12 hours after death. Wow. White oleander. Yes. I find poisoning very um, interesting because I think plants are really cool. Yes. But at the same time, like super um, cursed knowledge. Like, I don't want to know. Like, I want to cover my ears because I shouldn't know this. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> not allowed to know this. It's the same. Um, but yeah, it just I find it interesting. 
Um, <laughs> apparently, so did Michael Swango. So, um, yeah, he was make a scrapbook about it. Mm, he was obsessed with it. So, yeah, he knew that medical school was going to take forever. So, in the meantime, he studied to become a certified emergency medical technician or an EMT. He graduated summa cum laude in 1979 and was awarded the American Chemical Society Award which is just so creepy for what happens next. Yeah. Then he went to med school at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. The university urged its med students to not get a job their first year of med school so that they could focus on their studies, but Michael Swango didn't listen. He didn't care about the school at all. He hated the school part of school. He wanted everything hands-on. He wanted the gore. So he got a job working for an ambulance company as an EMT and he finally got to live out all those scenarios that he had imagined in his head all those years cutting out stories from newspapers now he was there at the scene firsthand he had a fascination with dying patients he loved watching them suffer he loved to look at the wounds and watching people take their last breath the silence that followed by the chaos that ensued after someone dies that is really what he was addicted to. He was addicted to not only watching the patients suffer, but the families and loved ones afterwards. I think he really like, like rivaled in, in the fact that he could comfort them after killing their loved ones. Yeah, like the last lady. Yes, exactly like creepy. that. Yes. What's wrong with you? I know. <laughs> not good. <laughs> he went to classes and lectures all day and spent nights working as an EMT, hardly getting any sleep. But he was absolutely in love with everything that he did. He loved the firsthand experience. Now, in anatomy class, they had an, a human cadaver that was being dissected. And when everyone was done with that class, everyone left the room. Michael waited. And when everyone was gone, he flipped the body over and took a bunch of tools from around the room and just decided to see what these tools did. So he oh, just no. hacked at this cadaver's hip and buttocks region and just mutilated it just absolutely mutilated it, it was said to be grotesque and unrecognizable what the hell then he just put the body back and left so that whenever it came time for the groups to present their dissections in class he turned the body over to show everyone what he had done and everyone was just in shock, like in absolute horror. Like, and he was just so proud. One person that was there said that it looked like he dissected it with a chainsaw. Fuck. For some reason, he wasn't immediately expelled for this. I don't know why they didn't do anything about this. But now, more than ever, everyone was weirded out by him. He was even more ostracized. More people, you know, were talking about him and he didn't fucking care he didn't care one bit like it was almost as if they didn't affect him at all like his his reputation at school had no effect on him whatsoever he had tunnel vision on the gore all he thought was like that was fucking awesome that's it he didn't care or even perceive anybody talking about him ew yeah he yeah, he had really, really like indulged in his studies of pathology and his chemistry studies on toxins and poisons. He excelled in neurosciences. 
in the classroom, but after the book work was over, part of his studies at Southern Illinois University included an internship at a campus hospital. Little did anyone realize he'd continue to to grow his sick experiments here now on live patients. In the three years he was there, many patients ended up coding and five of them died while he was either on duty or nearby. Most of them were patients that were on the mend that were, you know, like about to leave kind of um they were getting better and then all of a sudden they she just did die that shit too that's yeah we do this a lot whenever we're researching we end up researching very similar cases at the same time like i know everything's themed but still i don't know it's interesting so each student in class had their name on the whiteboard and then underneath their name as a list you had all of their patients that they oversaw and one by one as Michael's patients died, at this point, they're like at, at this school, <laughs> there will be five. And one by one, as they died, he wrote over their name in really big letters, D I E D, died. And this is not what we normally do. Like, this no. is not protocol. This is not something. What the fuck? This was literally like he was proud of it. He was absolutely proud of himself. And when one of the students asked him, like, do you not feel bad that your um, your patients are dying? He was like, no, that's just what happens. Okay. Okay. So after many code blues, flatlines, airlifts and deaths, which, by the way, a lot of his patients did get sick there, were airlifted to other places and then recovered shortly after, which, you know, we saw with the other case. But after all of this is going on, his classmates ended up nicknaming him Double O Swango. <laughs> because like, it's so hard to say because it's so stupid, because like James Bond, he had a license to kill. Now, most of his classmates, you know, basically all of his classmates took this as a joke. I don't think that they thought at this moment that he was actually killing them. They probably thought that he was just a really bad student and, you know, those people happened to die on his watch. But they ended up like making jokes and making fun of him. And if they had a patient that they didn't like or a patient that was like obviously in a really rough state, they would make jokes saying like, oh, Double O Swango needs to take that case, you know, basically to get rid of them. And it's a really terrible, morbid joke, but it's eerie how realistic that is. That's true. It's creepy. Right. But yeah, he didn't care. He didn't care that they were making jokes. He didn't even think twice about it. He just seemed to be one track minded, strictly sinister. He was touted as being this super genius, but forgot things like where the heart was on the x-ray. He was failing or downright just not turning in reports. When he did turn in reports, he would take like maybe like five minutes to fill them out. When most students, if they were actually doing their work correctly, it would take them about an hour because you had to do like evaluations with your patients and things like that. And um, he hated paperwork. He fucking hated paperwork and he put in absolute minimal effort, but because he knew what to say and because he was so manipulative, I mean, all of his papers that he turned in were perfect. 
He did them in five minutes. They were clearly forged, but they were perfect. So they got overlooked quite a bit. He also continued to creep everyone out around him, working on his little weird scrapbooks and making comments about death. He made some people so uncomfortable that like none of them wanted to be around him. They all like cleared the room whenever he entered, which was fine. He didn't want and he didn't want to be there or be around anyone anyways. He was much happier when he when the beeper on his hip went off and he had to go to an EMT emergency. So he would actually use this EMT job to skip classes and, you know, get out of assignments and get out of, you know, schooling. Many people would speculate, especially given his track record and the pace at which he would poison people, that he may be responsible for deaths, for more deaths that we don't really know while oh, working as an EMT. I don't doubt it. I don't all. either. I don't either. No. He was a real creepy EMT. But, you know, of course, because it's in a, a very high energy emergency situation, a lot of things can go overlooked and undocumented. And if they don't suspect anything, they're usually not going to do an autopsy. Yep, that's true. So, yeah. Um, but at one point, he ended up... Um, he was actually fired from the ambulance company because he tried to make a patient who was sick, uh, who was suffering from a heart attack. Sorry, person in the middle of a heart attack. He tried to make them walk to their car. He's an ambulance man. OK, he's Put got the, the thing ambulance. right there. Yeah. He's got all the stuff right there. Just follow the directions. In front of the man's God. family. He tried to get this man to walk to his own car and have his family take him. Now. In a heart attack situation. That's not a good idea. That's murder. Yeah. Like, that's murder. Yeah. No, he knew better than that. And he knew that that, you know, 10 f steps to the car could kill him instantly. He just didn't care. No, he didn't. Luckily, the man didn't die. Luckily, the man, you know, ended up surviving. But, yeah, he, he thankfully got fired from this. In 1982, a month before he was due to graduate from med school, the school board found out that he had faked an OBGYN checkup in his second year. Apparently, he had just gone into the room where he was supposed to do the exam, didn't, and then just wrote everything down that he needed to on the clipboard and immediately walked out of the room without even speaking to the pregnant patient in the room. Yeah, because, of course, he's disgusted by women. Yeah. Makes sense. Right. And then he looked into and then they looked into it. They found multiple reports, as well as many other students who came forward to say that Michael wasn't doing most of his checkups and reports. And he was supposed to. And, and um, he was he was forging all of these patient documents. Each student has to do a certain amount of what they call history and physicals, the H&Ps, which is yeah, just basically talking to your patient and um getting a general understanding of what their diagnosis may be so that way they know what tests to do basically all the pre paperwork yeah. and stuff like all those questions that they ask you when you first come in that's the hmps and that's what he was supposed to be doing but he wasn't he was just filling them out for the patient without even asking them questions yeah it's a no yeah he was almost expelled but the committee had to vote and they had to have a hundred percent vote on it they voted and one person voted for him so he God, I wonder how bad that person feels now. Yeah. Right. Uh, given everything that's going like to happen. You literally just walk, let a serial killer 
have a buffet of victims oh. for decades. God. Yeah. 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 So they ended up reasoning. They, he ended up reasoning with them. They ended up reasoning with him. They came to an agreement and basically he had to make up all of that work the next year and then he could graduate, which sucks. But it was at least a small relief to his classmates because they didn't have to graduate with him because they were all freaked out by him. They all were Obviously. scared of him, which, yeah, me too. So, yeah, that next year he ended up kissing major ass and did everything perfectly. He made perfect grades, perfect attendance, especially since he didn't have that EMT job. You know, he really he really hit it hard and he got his grades up and he cleared his name and he was able to graduate. He became a doctor. And then despite his terrible evaluation from the dean at SIU, he then gained a surgical internship at Ohio State University Medical Center in 1983, receiving a residency in neurosurgery. Jesus fucking Christ. Isn't that fucking scary? Stay away from my brain. <laughs> I was just terrifying. Each, each new job that he gets and like more access to people, it just gets scarier and scarier, which there's many. So here he was actually able to start over again. And as far as his reputation was concerned, no one knew him here. And at first everyone found him charming. Of course, until, you know, a few weeks later when his true, his true colors showed now, unlike his time in medical school, he here was an intern and during the beginning courses, he'd be heavily monitored by supervisors. So in college, there's all these other students, you know, doing all these other things. And and, you know, you don't have like someone monitoring your every move. But here as an intern, you do. Um, and you are you are supposed to be on your game and you're supposed to know what you're doing at this point you're a fucking doctor right so just after a little bit of monitoring they one by one his supervisors began to get worried that he wasn't competent they noticed that he quote-unquote lacked the compassion necessary to practice medicine they also noted that he talked about weird things um, he had very strange thoughts on death and even brought up the holocaust and nazis in inappropriate times they were so messed up about this they had to write this in their notes dude yeah like he can't just shut up like you gotta be that weird and not shut up it just i don't see how he lasted as long as he did now, within a year, he was caught by a nurse injecting a patient's IV with something before he left. And then the patient went into a seizure and respiratory arrest. He assured her that it was just vitamins and the whole ordeal was quickly swept under the rug. But the nurse continued to keep their eyes on him. While he entered at the hospital, five more patients died and many more were airlifted out and later recovered elsewhere. He also worked as a paramedic. And he got just weirder and weirder and weirder and more sinister and more blatant about his really creepy fascinations. Still obsessing over his newspaper cutout collage books, he told one of his fellow paramedic um, co-workers that his ultimate ambulance call, his, his most, the, the, the one he fantasized about the most, would be... Quote, a busload of children being hit by a tanker truck full of gasoline. That's what he's fantasizing at work. Okay, he doesn't need to have this job. No, 
no, he needs a really, really comfy chair with some straps to it. Yeah, he needs yeah. some help, not yeah. this. He later just shrugged this statement off as gallows humor, as a way to process the things that he was going through. And no, no, that's near. <laughs> Yeah. At one point, he was spotted by his co-workers and fellow med students at the scene of a horrible car accident, off-duty, in his street clothes, standing on top of the car with a camera taking pictures of the victims of the car accident inside their car before the medics showed up. Okay, it's terrible. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? Like, it's so scary, blatant. Like, so in your face that Mm -hmm. he doesn't care that you know that he's weird about this. Mm -mm. Because he knows he can just get away with it. Mm -hmm. Michael Swango decided to apply his chemistry degree to real world settings. He'd mix up various poisonous concoctions and poison a sweet tea in the commons area at the hospital. So where all of the employees eat. One day he brought in a big batch of donuts and for everyone like, oh, here, I brought you guys donuts. Everybody's like, oh, my God, why the fuck is Swango over here bringing us donuts? Like, we don't like you. <laughs> why are you? They obliged and ate mm-hmm. the donuts. Yeah, donuts are yummy. And of course, they were all poisoned. They all ended up sick. And the sweet tea was poisoned and they ended up sick from that, too. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the fellow medics that was there that day that had taken a bite of the of the donut had gotten sick. He went home, recovered. That next day, he actually had to work with Michael Swango at a football game. They were just there as medics in case anybody, you know, gets hurt, just standing on the sidelines. And Michael offered to go get him a drink from the concession stand. He came back with a Coke. and He's like, oh, thanks, man. He took a drink of that Coke and wound up violently ill for three days. He poisoned him again. Again. Damn. Yeah. His coworkers decided to search his bag and they found a bottle, a full bottle and an empty bottle of ant killer. Which I think most ant killer has cyanide in it. So they took this information to the police. Hair and fingernail samples were from the suspected poisoned co-workers, as well as the iced tea from the fridge were tested and confirmed to have high levels of arsenic. That's the one. So um, they searched his home and the media actually dubbed his house a house of horrors because it was basically just a giant chem lab to make poisons. He had large collections of poisons and chemicals to make the poisons, as well as stacks of recipe cards and ver- for various poisons, like laid out as if he was actively using them, just all scattered around. He um, he also had, you know, of course, the stacks and stacks and stacks of the scrapbooks, which they found in that House of Horrors and um, just really fucking creeped these investigators out. On October 26, 1984, just after his 30th birthday, he was arrested and immediately posted bail. When he left the jailhouse, he went straight back to that hospital where all those co-workers were that had just turned him in. They were standing right there 
and like kind of like congregated in the front doors. He walked by them, kept eye contact with them as he walked by. Then he walked down the hallway, out the side door, went around um, the sidewalk to where he was now on the opposite side of the street directly in front of them. For no, like he's just doing this to kind of like scare them. So he gets directly in front of them across the street, leans up against a telephone pole, pole and then just stares them down. Yeah, that's creepy. Just shit. stares, leans his foot up, kicks his foot up, kind of like gets comfortable mm-mm. and just stares. I don't like that. I do not like. Mm-mm, no me gusta. So, yeah, um, it just really creeped everybody out. But. Almost as an act of karma, I guess, Michael Swango was also being watched and followed by police and the FBI because they were like, okay, if he's poisoning people on this level, he's got to be doing more stuff. Yeah, he's got to be up to something else. Right. So everywhere he went, they followed. They'd creep behind him during his morning jogs and daily routines. And throughout the night, they would be staked out while he slept. They knew he was a serial poisoner and possibly a flight risk. Almost in a strange, serendipitous sort of way, while Michael Swango was being taken in for questioning, he bumped into an old friend, a teacher from high school. This old teacher was now an attorney, and he looked at his old student and he said, Mike, what are you doing here? And he looked at him and he was like, looked very confused. He was like, I don't know. So the teacher ended up becoming his lawyer in this trial. And I kind of think that he didn't believe he had done it. He really thought that this was all circumstantial evidence. No one had seen Michael actually in the act of poisoning. So, yeah, I think he really did believe him at first. He swore he was innocent and even asked the lawyer if he could have some of the paramedics that he worked with be his character witnesses. And he, he can't, he, I just don't believe he did that as a, as a uh, mistake or something, you know, because he's stupid or careless. I think he did that to try to twist the perception of his innocence. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Because all of, all of the coworkers were like, you know, going to be character witnesses against him. We're going to testify against him. So I don't know. They were really weirded out that he even thought about that. Um, either way, they refused and gave compelling testimonies against Michael Swango. And then months before the trial, Michael randomly went to Florida and then he came back from Florida. And when he came back, he called his lawyer frantically and was like, you got to get down here quick. His lawyer's like, okay, what? He's like, come quick. His lawyer gets there and there's ants everywhere. (laughs) It's just... This story is just so stupid. I fucking I'm, hate this I'm guy. I'm just like blinking. It's not good radio, but. <laughs> There's just ants everywhere. He's like, see, ants, ant killer. That's why I had syringes of ant killers because of the ants. Look at all the ants. <laughs> Did he go get some ants? He went to Florida and got ants that only live in Florida. <laughs> why couldn't you just get local ants? There are <laughs> ants every fucking where. Just go to the fucking playground. Go get some ants. <laughs> Spill a, spill a can of soda. It's so you got ants. ants. This put is some, why we get, this is how we get ants. Put some sugar on the counter. You right. got ants. Yes. I just, <laughs> he makes so many stupid mistakes. I just, oh, I hate this guy. 
so yeah, they the ants were tested and confirmed to be from Florida. So on May, oh, he thought he was so smart. <laughs> he did. That's what I'm saying. Everybody says that he's like this crazy, awesome genius. I think he just knew how to manipulate people and knew how to take tests. I, I don't think that he was that smart. So on May 3rd, 1985, Ma- Michael Swango was found guilty of six charges of aggravated battery. He was he only was sentenced to five years and only served two because of good behavior. He was released in August of 1987 at the age of 32. And everyone in Quincy, Illinois, was terrified for him to return. Well, yeah, because look what happened whenever he did last time. Yeah. But this time he doesn't. Well, he's going to be a just good boy. Gone. No, he's just fucking gone. Oh, he just leaves. Oh, yeah. He's on the run. Yeah. yeah. He actually left Illinois and went as far east as he could get. He settled in a little coastal town called Hampton, Virginia. Here, he tried to get a local med- medical license to practice medicine, but he had a felony. So his license was rejected. And this is going to be quite the trouble from now on is basically he's going to his thing is that he's trying to get into hospitals and all of this, but he has this felony on his record. So for now on, he's going to try to like circumvent this issue. So, um, so he ended up getting a job instead as a counselor at a care center, helping students get into med school. So he's just kind of helping them through their beginning classes and tests and studies and stuff like that. His colleagues started to suffer from strange illnesses, vomiting, stomach pains, headaches. The longer that he was there, the weirder he got and the sicker everyone else got. Just Everywhere else he went, Michael creeped, or just like everywhere else he went, Michael creeped these people out with his scrapbooking and strange and morbid con- comments about death and, and injuries. Eventually, when one of the employees ended up hospitalized, the staff at the career center went to the police and they started an investigation because this was very... Yeah, mm-hmm. it was very evident that he was doing something. They found out in the investigation, they found out about his previous poisoning. And so he ended up quitting <laughs> and went on the run again. It's kind of a theme with him. Yeah. He's like, I didn't do it. Bye. Whoopsie. <laughs> yep. And then he goes and, and, you know, tries to start over again. And, you know, each place that he starts over again, he's like, you know, I'm going to be a, a different character and everybody's going to believe this face. And they only do for a couple weeks. And then he goes, off he, the rails. he can't be not weird as why. He can't. He doesn't no. know how. Uh-uh. So in January of 1990, Michael legally changed his name to David Jackson Adams. He worked as a lab tech and a part-time paramedic before applying for a doctor position in Wheeling, West Virginia in May of 1991. But because of his new name, um, not matching his you know degree and so in school records, he had to use his dead name. And since he was sure that they would find out about his felony, he actually decided to be upfront and tell them that this battery charge was actually just a fight that he got into. Okay. Yeah. And he really tried to skew the story or the narrative to be like, oh, this was like, you know, him defending himself. I was defending myself. I was not poisoning everyone, I swear. No, that's not poison. No, he even forged prison documents that backed up this 
uh, allegation of a fight. He also forged a letter from the governor of Virginia that allegedly was recommending that he be reinstated. And he's like, see, even the governor said, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> like nobody believed them. Nobody no. believed these these forgeries. And if they would have pressed charges, these would have been felony charges, but they didn't. And they didn't notify anyone. They just let him go. And from there, he basically just bounced around from odd job to odd job for a while. He but it wasn't enough for Michael. These odd jobs weren't like giving him the gore that he needed to satiate himself. But he needed to be in the medical field. He needed to be close to patients with plenty of victims to choose from and his, you know, alibis of being able to do their paperwork. He decided to enroll in an advanced life support course at a local hospital in Hampton, Virginia, hoping that this would help build back his, you know, all of the steps to build back his career into the medical field. It was here at this hospital that he met a beautiful 25 year old nurse named Kristen Kinney. She had a bright smile and a warm and kind personality and Michael fell hard for her. He didn't care that she had a boyfriend who was apparently kind of a deadbeat anyways. Michael showered her with gifts and attention and soon she dumped her boyfriend for Michael he smooth talked her and completely charmed her into thinking that he was a stand-up guy and she fully supported his initiative to find work in a hospital her being a nurse she thought it was kind of the dream yeah i get that but this sounds like a nightmare mm, it is a terrible nightmare nightmare um i forgot to say trigger warnings at the beginning of this episode we'll put it in the description but yeah trigger warnings of obviously poisoning and death that we've already talked about but also trigger warnings on um uh domestic abuse gaslighting and ultimately suicide it's sad so yeah she she believed everything that he said fully Truly, she believed that he was just a very kind guy that life had dealt him some bad cards. He started applying for jobs all across the country, which, of course, you know, most of them were with falsified documents. Pretty much any job that he applied for were either including falsified documents or just forged shit completely. He eventually, in 1992, landed a job with a residency at a university hospital in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, on the other side of the country, thousands of miles away. His now fiance, Kristen Kenny, moved with him. She had actually grown up in Virginia and kind of lived in this small town her whole life and lived close by her parents. And so this move across the country was a really big big yeah. deal for her now for the first time it seems like michael was on his best behavior at this hospital he acts like a normal guy he doesn't show anyone his weird scrapbooks he doesn't say any weird things to anybody and you know doesn't bring up the holocaust so that's really fucking cool but it only worked for like a few months i was fixing to say it didn't last I'm assuming. no no it did not last um and, and for once, he actually had some colleagues that liked him. Um, but for some reason, Michael decided to try to join the American Medis Medicine Medical Association. Man, <laughs> just quit while you're ahead. Fuck. I don't know why he did this. It was like one of the stupidest things that he did. But yeah, 
this would definitely be part of what led to his downfall because the AMA is not fucking around at all. As soon as they started asking him questions about his past convictions and the teacher's notes from his colleges, he withdrew his application, but it was too late. The people reviewing his application took note that he was working in a hospital again, which you cannot do. And they started talking amongst themselves about their suspicions and concerns. The official in charge of his file was actually talking to a friend who knew the dean of the South Dakota Medical Center that he was working at. They made a few phone calls, and by late November of 1992, Michael was suspended, urged to submit his resignation, or else they'd have to officially kick him out completely. Damn. Yeah, it all just came crashing down. All of this talk about Michael's alleged tainted past and his reputation as a doctor being completely destroyed around town, it really put a damper on Michael and Kristen's relationship. She couldn't see him the way that other people saw him. To her, he was a kind and gentle person, a good doctor. She couldn't fathom him hurting people. She couldn't stomach it. She couldn't even picture him poisoning people. Like, that would be so out of realm of possibilities. And, you know, you have to understand that at this point, she's so gaslit and so manipulated that she's going to believe him. He's, you know, essentially slow boiled her to the point to where anything that he says, Mm -hmm. um, she's going to believe. And I just wanted to take a second because I recently, um, I recently did a lot of research on gaslighting just to kind of get a a better understanding other than like what the Internet or what social media and memes want to say about it. And I did find that the term gaslighting from a movie, it's it's from it's a play that I think became a movie. movie. Yes, it was a movie in the 50s. -hmm. I didn't see it, but I, I, you know, I I have seen read about it. Um, But yeah, apparently it's about a, a husband who, you know, the house has gaslighting. And, you know, through a lot of other manipulation tactics and lies and and things like that, he is slowly dimming the gas lights in the house and making his wife believe that they're not actually dimming, that she's going crazy. Yeah, he drives her insane. Yeah. Yeah. Does she end up killing herself or dying in any way? Gosh, it's been, I want to say, 15 years since I've seen this movie. Um, But I can, you go on and I'll Google it. Yeah. Well, it just, it just... Um, is eerily and, and very sadly similar to what happened to Kristen Kenny, because that's it. Like she didn't realize that all around her, her life, her idea of this man that she loved so much was all being manipulated, that she was being made to feel like she was the one that's going crazy. Because while she is really pressing him for more information about all of this, like she's just really concerned. The more she presses him about it, the more he gets enraged, he gets mad. And the more mad he gets, the sicker she becomes. A little bit by a little bit. Her stomach hurts. She gets these really bad headaches. But she just shrugs it off. Like, it's just stress. I can get through this. It's okay. You know, it's just a headache. I'll take a nap. I'll take an Advil or something. You know, she really doesn't. She can't understand that she is being poisoned. 
that idea is not something that she can rationalize. She can rationalize the stress, though. Okay, so 1944, the movie Gaslight came out. No, she did not die in the end. Okay. But it would make sense that he would have driven her so crazy that she would have killed herself because well, that's a lot of times what movie. happens. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. that was de- that was the number one tactic used against me by yeah. my abuser was gaslighting. Yeah, to the mm-hmm. point where we would have like a huge argument, right? right? Hours and hours, and the next day, you know, I'd still be pissed, right? And he'd be like, "Hey, what's wrong?" I was like, "Well, the argument yesterday really fucking sucked," and he would be like, "What argument? What are you, what are you talking about?" Ew. And I'd be like, come on, you know, the argument we had yesterday is, no, I really don't know what you're talking about. And he would bring up the, my previous head injury from my car accident. <gasps> He'd be like, you just don't remember things sometimes. He's like, are you sure you don't need to see a doctor? And, you know, the first, like, a bajillion times it happened, I just kind of rolled my eyes, you know, I was like, I don't right. know what he's trying to do. Like maybe That's crazy he was just drunk or something. No, he wasn't a drinker. I just oh. thought maybe he was just, I thought he was trying to fuck with me. But then it does wear on you after a while. And then you really do start doubting yourself. And it is the worst feeling in the world. You Mm -hmm. do feel like you're going crazy. I doubt myself all the time because of it. I still do it. Yeah. All the time. So I don't even know if I have a bad memory or if I just was accused of having one so many times that Mm. I do. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah, it's real. And it it really does have physical and psychological effects. Yeah, it's fucked. For sure. For sure. It's abuse. And if someone's doing it to you, you're being abused. Yes thousand percent so yeah she she just tried to you know um write it off as stress and continue continue on with her daily activities when she left to go visit her family back in virginia in the spring of 1993 she all of a sudden became better like within a matter of hours shocking yeah she while she was there she was only there for like a handful of weeks with her with her parents she ended up you know, talking it through, you know, after getting better, she gained clarity. And after discussing it with her parents, they all decided that she had to leave Michael. And then just as they were literally deciding that she should leave Michael and how she should do it, Michael shows up on their doorstep and basically just talks his way back into her life. Because again, he is without a job. He's without a place to stay. And his name is completely soiled and he has nothing. So he decided to come back to her and mooch off of her and basically just live in her apartment. She got an apartment, she got a job, and she rebuilt her life, and he just used her. He used her for food and shelter while he did nothing. He did absolutely nothing. He didn't clean up after himself. He helped in no way. He just forged a bunch of documents and then sent a bunch of um resumes all over the country looking for new work and he did end up getting hired at a university hospital in new york but about two weeks after he left on july 15th 1993 trigger warning Kristen lynn kenny died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to her chest two weeks after he left she just couldn't take it anymore with the back and forth of their relationship, with the back and forth of her health, with the, you know, constant wondering if she was actually sick, if her, the love of her life was actually poisoning her. Um, All of this kind of came crashing down for her and she sadly couldn't 
couldn't do it anymore. And I don't blame her. Nope. It is a thousand percent his fault. Oh, yeah. And um, it's just really, really heartbreaking. She was only 27 years old and she was just a beautiful and wonderful person. And um, she could have done great things in this world. But for some reason, that man had to come across her path. Now, he acted like he didn't care. He acted like he like this, like this didn't affect him whatsoever. He went straight to work as a psychiatry resident at the State University Hospital in New York at Stony Brook. Why he was in psychiatry? I have no idea. He never studied psychiatry unless it was like a one off thing. Um, He definitely wasn't licensed in it, so I'm not sure why he got that. But either way, um, he now had patients close to him. So, of course, he would go on to do the exact same thing all over again. And so by now, at this point, the death toll is about five per hospital. And since he's been in about three or four hospitals by now, um, that death toll right now is about 20. Good Lord. If if I were to go through every single individual case, um, this episode would be like three weeks long. So unfortunately, I, I don't have the time to meticulously go over each of their cases. But they all I mean, they all have their varying differences, but they all are very similar in the in how he just like blatantly walks into these people's room, injects their IVs with poison and then walks right back out. Um, just absolutely atrocious. According to CBS News, the best-selling book Blind Eye, the story of a doctor who got away with murder, suggests that Swango may have killed as many as 35 patients on two separate continents all combined. Jesus. At this point, it had been about eight years since he had last been in a hospital um, with a hospital victim. I mean, of course, I'd count his ex-girlfriend as one of his victims. But, you know, he it's been eight years since he's been in this setting and he is very eager to get back to work. Yeah, obviously. He basically just is more blatant than ever at this point. He's seen injecting patients IVs. One patient was found by his wife tied up in the hospital bed, which he was recovering from a pneumonia. Like he was yeah. fine. He was just coming in for a checkup to make sure he was good. She came in and her husband's tied to his bed. And Michael Swango is like over him. And he ends up making this ridiculous story up about how this man got violent with him and he had to restrain him. And she just knew that that wasn't her husband's character. Like he was a very soft person. She was like, my husband would never do that, but she didn't want to argue with a doctor. So it was written off, but eventually Michael's luck ran out. It was actually with the help of Kristen Kenny's friend from South Dakota who ignited the end of Dr. Death. Though it'd be a slow burnout. She had heard that Michael Swango was working in a hospital in New York city or in New York state and had contacted people she knew over there. And they in return contacted the hospital at Stony Brook and told them about the horrors of Michael Swango. And the Dean at Stony Brook ended up suspending Michael's license and single handedly called every single school Dean in the, in the country 
and personally warned them about Dr. Swango. Warnings are nice. He should be in jail. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. I'm just annoyed he's not. Right. Well, these are all processes because, you know, there's no... You have to really work hard on physical evidence whenever it comes to these types of poisonings. Um, You know, there's no, like, tool marks that you can look for or anything like that. So by the end of 1993, he was blacklisted, which is definitely a step in the right direction. Now, because of this nationwide span of fraud and potential poisonings across the, the United States, the FBI got involved. The feds. The fucking feds. They obtained a warrant for Michael Swango's arrest on fraud charges, so that way they could at least get him behind bars. They could get him behind bars, and then they could go rifle through his shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But when they go to arrest him, he's nowhere to be found. In February of 1994, so a few months later, he resurfaced, trying to get a job in Atlanta, Georgia, at a water treatment facility... Jesus Christ! No! Damn! I know. I know. It's like, this whole case is just one what the fuck after the next. But how fucking scary is it to have a serial poisoner have access to an entire city's water supply? It's no good. No, it's not good. And that's exactly what the FBI thought. Um, he had even gotten this job under the fake name Jack Kirk, but somehow they were able to see right through it. The FBI got involved pretty much instantly. And thank goodness they were able to contact his boss and get him fired before he could actually do anything. But by the time the FBI could try to catch up with him, he was gone. And he fled to fucking Zimbabwe. <laughs> Of all the places. Zimbabwe. Um, Yeah, I mean, this guy is just like one thing after another. Like, you don't really expect where he's going to go. But yeah, he was, man, the community that he went to in Zimbabwe, I just, my whole heart goes out to them because they were really suffering. And this one particular clinic that he was involved with, they needed help. They needed help. And they thought that this, you know, quote unquote, good looking blonde American doctor was going to come in with all of his, you know, uni- university studies and come and save everybody and, 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 you know, heal the sick. Right. No, he took absolute advantage over these people and it was just bad. It was just not okay. So there in Zimbabwe, several of his patients ended up dying. One pregnant woman started screaming and all the nurses rushed to find double O Swango up in there with an, with a syringe in her IV. And they, they caused a ruckus as they should. Yeah. He, um, so he tried to play it off as if she was just being hysterical, but she instantly started sweating and vomiting. And thankfully they got the IV out of her to save her in time to save her and her baby. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. But Dr. Swango tried to say that he was just flushing her tubes with some saline. They're like, no, no, the doctor and staff at the hospital, they all called a meeting to talk about their suspicions of Michael and, you know, some of the things that they had seen. And after each individual told their story and their perspective, they immediately called police. They were like, OK, whoa, whoa, we we got to we got to yeah, this fucked up. So an investigation was opened and they searched his house to find an outrageous amount of drugs, 
narcotics. I'm not surprised. And dozens of the bottles were already opened, used, and empty. Drugs that included adrenaline, ephedrine, Valium, and a bunch of other ones that I can't pronounce and I don't even want to try. Probably just extreme uppers or extreme downers to kill people. Yeah. And some that caused, um, like, numbness or, like... Succinylcholine, was that one? I think that's one of them, yes. Succinylcholine is one of the most horrifying ways to be killed, and I will explain what it does. Yeah, do it. It is a paralytic agent. It is used during surgeries to paralyze your muscles. Yes. Including your breathing. Yes. That's why the machine breathes for you. So if you are injected with succinylcholine, guess what, fam? You're awake. You just yeah. can't breathe and you can't move and yeah. you slowly suffocate to death. One of one of the patients he injected with, I believe, was that because of the symptoms. He said that he woke up to the doctor um, injecting him in, in the buttocks. Mm-hmm. And when he went to yell for help, he couldn't move. Yep. His entire that body. That is succinylcholine. He was able to kind of make some sort of sound in order to get a nurse's attention. They did end up saving his life. Thank goodness. And he was able to tell the tale. But had he not, they wouldn't that have had that That is a death evidence. sentence. It is a horrible, miserable way to die. Right. Yeah. Very scary. Yeah. So once they found his big stash of medicines and poisons and all of this, they went to make an arrest. And what did Michael do? He ran away. Yeah. This time he went to um, a small African town, um, just kind of like westward. And he went into hiding there. He made up a new character like he does everywhere he goes. And he actually ended up saying that he was like in his late 20s when he's actually in his 40s by this point, which I heard someone talk about this. And they're like, how the fuck do you pull that off? Like, no, he really did. He really did look like he was in his late 20s whenever he was in his 40s. I was like, I bet he just looked young. He really did. Maris looks 22. Yeah, he didn't have any facial hair. And he had like a really big, like charismatic smile. Mm -hmm. Like, I hate this guy and I want to punch him in the face, but he had a good smile. And I think that um, I think that that was what he used to charm people most. Now, in this small town, he played this new character and actually ended up finding an all-white Presbyterian church there where he met a civil rights lawyer that ended up fighting the case for him (sighs) against this fucking clinic who's doing their best to save lives and stay afloat. He gets this lawyer, and this lawyer fights the case saying that, like, um, Michael said that, oh, yeah, I just had all of those medicines because I'm a good doctor, and I just came here to give you guys free medicine. Like, I did you guys a favor. Gross. Um, yeah. And then this, this fucking lawyer was so good at what he does that he actually ended up suing the clinic, and they ended up paying Michael. Michael Swango got paid to kill these people. And essentially torture them as well. Fucking disgusting. So while he's in that small village, he's like trying to like, you know, go through this court trial and then figure out his next moves. He's renting a place from a woman who he ended up actually getting really close to and becoming like kind of friends with um, her and her daughter. And... This is when he, like, really played up that he was in the late 20s because her daughter was in her 20s and he was, like, trying to marry her or something. Um, I don't know what his plan was with that, but he ended up poisoning them for a fucking course. So 
yeah, he ended up getting kind of chased out of that village and he ended up fleeing once again. This time he forged documents and landed at a job in Saudi Arabia. All right. <laughs> so in July of 1997, Michael boards a plane to go to the Middle East. And by some fucking miracle, the plane has a layover in Chicago. Good. The second that man's feet touch American soil, the FBI is on him. They're like, hip, 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 yeah, hip, yeah. hip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was basically arrested right there, charged with federal fraud charges, which he pled guilty to. He was sentenced to three years in prison, which basically meant they had about a year and a half to build this case which they had to work really, really fast because, I mean, we know that, like, even fingerprints and hair samples take months and months to process and things like that. So they had basically a year and a half to get this guy on murder charges or else he was going to be out. In July of 2000, literally days before he was due to be released, the feds charged him with the 1993 deaths of three suspected, three of the five suspected VA hospital victims. So they at least got like a positive um, uh, toxicology report for three of them. Good. Their remains had to be exhumed and through tests and evidence um, through tests, they, they, they found evidence of poisoning and they had I can't go into it because of time. But the way that they found out about the poisons in, in these people's bodies was really interesting because poisons leave your system so fast. Most do. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they had to kind of reverse engineer what the body would have done in reaction to the poisons. That's right. That's exactly what they do in the case, especially of succinylcholine, because it doesn't yeah. last in the system very long yeah. at all. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. That is. So he pled guilty to the three murder charges and was sentenced to three congruent life sentences. He later also pled guilty to the murder of a 19-year-old girl named Cynthia McGee, who died while recovering from a car accident. So scary. Like, this 19-year-old girl, I, I believe that she was on a bicycle when a car hit her, and it wasn't very fast. She wasn't injured that much like she had like minor injuries she was just recovering of that's physical all. injuries and she died of poisoning and it's just so, so fucking sad. sad there's so many of these cases where the people had very minor like physical injuries or like that one guy was recovering from a pneumonia one guy that they exhumed um he had actually gotten the wife to sign a do not resuscitate form and he was put into a coma by Dr. Swango. When they dug him up and did an autopsy on him, they found a cotton ball stuck in his throat. My God. It's just, I wish we could go back and look at all of the people that died mm -hmm. under his watch. They're not gonna. They're not going to. No. And it's really, it's really hard to even try, especially with the EMT and paramedic work. But my God, you talk about prolific. Like, I know that Dr. Shipman had like 250, 280, but he was so quick. And so, you know, and the deaths were painless. Like he used yeah. morphine across the board. It's just so eerie how that doctor death and this doctor death are so different, but yet so prolific and so terrifying. Yeah, it's real fucked up. 
fuck <laughs> fuck fuck so yeah i'm i'm really nervous about the next doctor death because i haven't really looked into that case yet i kind of have to um i kind of have to do them one at a time this month because there's just so much information but that dr swango double o swango mm-mm, girl i don't like him what a piece of shit <sighs> he's just something's something's not right with that one no mm-mm and you know what is right, though? Business time. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> hey, y'all. Guess what? I read tarot cards. Bet right. you didn't know that. She does. But now you do. Almost 30 years of experience. Let me let me put your mind at ease. Let me give you some encouragement. Seriously, I've been needing her to read me tarot lately. And I read tarot. I All love right. tarot. But sometimes you just need somebody else to do it for you to have a better perspective. And she's Because each reader puts their unique perspective on their interpretation of the cards. Right. And I let that what I do with a reading, especially you, so you're wanting to get the full reading because it's more comprehensive. Right. But I let the cards just tell me a story and I connect them all together. It's some good shit. I will have my email Help clear address. Your head. Helps yeah. clear your head, clear your thoughts, release some of that anxiety. So that way, you know mm-hmm. what to plan for. Yeah. And, you know, for women, you know what I, I pull so much is cards saying that like their work life balance is fucked because women just take on too much. We do. And they internalize so mm-hmm. much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's just good to hear it because people in your life don't notice that you do all these things. Mm-hmm. So it's good to get a little kudos from the universe. Right. A little gold star feels nice. It's a nice thing to do for yourself. Uh, you can contact me. I'll have my email in the description and there's a link to my Facebook page and can contact me through there as well i'm running specials all week so just message me and see what they are it's a good time we have a patreon it is an excellent Uh, place to be there you will find additional episodes episode commentaries mm. lots that's where we keep all our pictures for our cases uh in case unless i forget because I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but the way we put them up, we put them yeah. up. Yeah. Um, Willow's really better with the pictures than I am. I'm just like, here's the guy. I basically here's. present a mini documentary. In kind of. Form. Yeah. But it helps sure. my brain. Helps, yeah. helps me get everything. And those are all public posts, though. So if you want to see the case photos for this, for example, mm-hmm. Mosey. Go yeah. mosey. And you out. can look at the Patreon case photos, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do need to be a subscriber to get a hold of the episodes. We have 111, 111. Somebody agents. make it 120 for me this month, yeah, and I'll be a very happy so, Lillian. so thankful. I'll probably be running a contest this month on Patreon. Mm-hmm. And that means if you become a patron, I'm going to give you something. I have a good idea. What is it? Let's hear it. Let's just spitball it right now. What is it? Um, because we really need reviews and ratings if you screenshot your review and send it in yeah criticism i appreciate being sent to my email email yeah we love criticism just don't put that on the because we're a young podcast it really hurts uh, we're a small business a very 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 small business and just because look here's (laughs) the thing I don't expect this podcast to be for everyone. It's yeah. not made for everyone. Yeah. Uh, but if you're just rating it because you don't like my personal politics, mm-hmm. I think that's a bit silly. It's not quality of the podcast. It just means it wasn't for you, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And that's why I bring this up, because we have had, like, the occasional one stars just because people don't agree with us politically. Oh, yes. and, and the hate um, mail, that's fun. That's fine. I mean, I don't care. Well, but those are fun. I, I'm not political. I'm I'm into human rights and I don't feel like that should be political but that's neither here nor there it just it helps it helps the podcast if you yeah. like us and you want to help us 
uh, we'll see about yeah. that. Like, uh, I'll uh, I'll figure out some kind of. I may do two Patreon contests this yeah. month. So if you're, all, I'm sorry, my dog is beeping. Uh, she doesn't <laughs> bark. She's too small. She beeps. If you become a patron. Mm-hmm. I will enter you into a contest, and that is for the month of July, starting now. Yep. Uh, what will you win? A prize package. What will it be? Really cool shit. Don't worry about <laughs> it. It will be at least value to 100 bucks. Okay. It'll be nice, fun stuff. You'll get some merch uh, from the podcast in addition to I make stuff, and I'll send it to you. That's how that's going to work. And I'll give you some options if you win. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to enter. And if you want a free Patreon membership, please leave a nice review. Screenshot mm-hmm. that review and email it to the the Cruelty yeah. email, which and is in our link tree. If you've already left a review, because we already have you can a, screenshot a lot that, of really then. great reviews. Yes. You guys can already enter that. You don't have to do it again. No, you don't. That would be the most let you I really think thank you guys like hey yeah aside from reviews and all of that y'all have been messaging us so supportive very kind it is literally fuel for this podcast yes really makes keeps us going because when we first started making it we had 12 listeners yeah and now we have a lot more more than that (laughs) (laughs) it's crazy because it's not it's not even been how long has it been I don't even know most of the countries that listen to us I don't I can't even find you guys on the globe except for the Antarctica that's fucking awesome that's so cool get on the ball Antarctica thank you Actually, that I don't know. They even have they have scientists on Antarctica. Well, scientists can listen to some podcasts. Yeah, I probably make them mad with my Maris Monday podcast. It's not very <laughs> sciencey. <laughs> anyway, hey, if all you can do to support this podcast is listen, I appreciate you. Hey, small business people, let me throw yeah. this out here. Yeah. Let's work together yeah. as small businesses. And mm-hmm. if you want to figure out how to get your products featured on our podcast, a little commercial that we do, please email me and we'll set that up. Yep. Uh, basically, uh, you're our sponsor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're working for you. And mm-hmm. we'll, we can d- discuss the businessy details in email. Yeah. But other than that, I ain't got nothing else. So I'm going to go because I'm hot. Yeah, you <laughs> are. Oh, hey. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> anyway, love you guys. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Us on your social media platform of choice. Linktree slash cruelty has all the links. Check out our Patreon for exclusive episodes, merch, ad-free episodes, live ghost hunts, and much more. Please be sure to subscribe. New episodes are uploaded weekly. Thank you so much. See you next time. Music and production by Lee.